Hi, I'm JJ McQuarrie. And I'm Kevin Kozer. And we host Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. Each week, we look at a different Doctor Who story from Big Finish and share what we love and what we don't. We're looking at everything from the very first stories to David Tennant's most recent adventures, and we hope that you'll join us. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and pretty much wherever you find podcasts. So give us a listen, and remember, keep talking who. Hello, I am Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who Target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them, or even collect the hardcover editions, or maybe the Pinnacle American editions. For all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual. Tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video junkyard podcast you are listening to the doctor who target book club podcast happy listening hi this is louise jensen and i play leela on doctor who well, back when god was a boy you're listening to the doctor who target book club podcast enjoy your travels time travelers and welcome back to the doctor who target book club the podcast in which we undertake the enlarging task of discussing in story order all the doctor who novelizations my name is tony whit and today we have a not at all enlarged three-person discussion panel including our so-called expert who's been a who fan since 1979 that would be me there's our intermediate level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. And finally, there's our semi-novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around it's the wise and witty Alison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Alison. Good evening. If you like what you're hearing, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash DWTargetBC. Depending on the amount you give per month, you receive, among other possible goodies, face masks, mugs, and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving the PBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of those, you keep them in the sewers guarded by your giant rats, <laughs> just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons. Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, Guy Lambert, and Simon Painter. Thank you, everyone. 
A fine Thank collection you. of humanity. Yes. yes. And I did it all in one breath for once. Amazing. <laughs> we also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tanyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We now complete Tom Baker's third season by discussing Terrence Dick's novelization of The Talons of Wing Chiang. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Talents of Wing Chiang, adapted by Terrence Dix from script by Robert Holmes, it aired from 22677 for 277, published by Target Books in November 1977. As of this recording of May 2021, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 140 pages. Now, it turns out, before we start this, I have another correction to make. Because last time, I said that David Collings, who played Poole in Robots of Death, was in the audio drama Sympathy for the Devil. He was not. He was in the audio drama Full Fathom 5, which I should have known, but somehow I did not. So my thanks to our Patreon, Jay Barry, for pointing that out on Facebook. The error has been edited out of the recording currently posted so that nobody ever need speak of this again unless they hear this episode. <laughs> in which case <laughs> they'll know of say, our shame. Yes, yes. exactly. A couple of things to note about this book. Not only is this the last novelization and story order to be released as a pinnacle edition in the U.S. in 1979, it's also the last title to be reprinted by Target Books in March of 1994. So lots of firsts and lasts there. Another last is that it's producer Philip Hinchcliffe's last story. He would go on to a series named, ironically enough, Target... <laughs> which was considered very successful, and he would move on to writing three Target novels, which was less successful. Yikes. Yes. Y yeah. We've read all three of them, so we never have to speak of this ever again either. <laughs> he continued to do TV and movie production through the 80s, 90s, and early aughts, and he's written several scripts for Big Finish. And with the death of previous producer Derek Sherwin in 2018, he is now currently the only producer from the classic series still living. The story is noteworthy for a number of reasons, not all of them good. For years, the story was and still is regarded as one of the best stories of the series. In fact, it was voted the best story of the series in the 2003 Outpost Gallifrey poll. And in Doctor Who Magazine's polls in 2009 and 2014, it won 4th and 6th place, respectively. This is including episodes from the new series. Mm. The creators of the new series have praised it for the love of its writing, and for years it was this story that Robert Holmes' reputation rested on more than any other, at least until Caves of Androzani came around, and when we get there you'll see why. Part of that praise centers around the characters of Jago and Lightfoot, as played by Christopher Benjamin and Trevor Baxter. Benjamin had previously appeared in Inferno as Sir Keith Gold, and Baxter's career had spanned for decades before this story. He also appeared in the movies Cold Comfort Farm and Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow, just to name a few that we might actually know of. Their chemistry was such that there were unsubstantiated rumors for years that their characters had been considered for a spin-off series. As it turns out, they did get one. Big Finish produced a series of audio dramas starring the two, spanning for 13 series from 
2010 until 2017, which was the year that Baxter died. Another noteworthy name in the cast is Deep Roy, who played Mr. Sin. Among other things, Roy appeared as a body double for R2-D2 in the last two original trilogy Star Wars movies. He played Keenzer in the 2005 Star Trek movie trilogy. That would be the little character who hangs around Scotty. And he played all of the Oompa Loompas in the <laughs> Charlie and the Chocolate Factory remake. Yes. He's also done more stunt work than I can possibly list. So, yeah, he's got an extraordinary career and is still with us. And finally, John Bennett, who had appeared in a ridiculous number of TV episodes and movies both here and the UK before his death in 2005, played Lee San Chang. Which brings us to the more negative reasons that the story is noteworthy. Bennett is a white actor playing a Chinese character in Yellowface. And despite the fact that it is an amazing performance, it's one of the factors that causes the story to be considered racist now. There's also the depiction of the Chinese as criminals and drug addicts, which is obviously inspired by Sachs Romer's Fu Manchu books, which are themselves considered quite racist by modern readers, and quite rightly so. The story has been considered controversial since 1980, when the Chinese-Canadian National Council for Equality complained to TV Ontario, which led to TV Ontario not airing the six-parter in syndication. Last year, in response to viewers' complaints, the streaming service BritBox added trigger warnings about the content to all six episodes. On another note, this was originally going to be one of Leela's last stories as well, since Hinchcliffe had told Tom Baker that she would only be a temporary companion, incoming producer Graham Williams asked her to stay another season, which she agreed to, despite the tension with Baker, on the condition that something was done to get rid of the red contact lenses she had to wear, which he agreed to, and more about that next time. She also had a terrible time making the story, in addition to the usual reasons, because she was suffering from glandular fever at the time. And during the scene with the giant rat, she managed to get completely soaked, which must have just felt awful. And don't get me started on that rat, which even new series producer Stephen Moffat has derided as being a weak point in an otherwise strong, albeit problematic, story. <laughs> so, yes... Let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? Dalton, would you be willing to do the honors this time? Sure. Stepping out of the TARDIS into Victorian London, Leela and the Doctor are confronted by menacing, diabolical horrors shrouded within the swirling London fog. A man's death cry, an attack by Chinese Tong hatchetmen, giant rats roaming the sewers, young women mysteriously disappearing. The hideously deformed Magnus Greel Conducting a desperate search for the lost time cabinet is the instigator of all this evil. Posing as the Chinese god Wang Chiang, Grill uses the crafty Chang and the midget mannequin Mr. Sin to achieve his terrifying objectives. The doctor must use all his skill, energy, and intelligence to escape the talons of Wang Chiang. Yes, and I imagine that word midget probably doesn't go over too well with most people these days either. But no, there you go. <laughs> First impressions of this one. Allison, you listened to the audiobook, which was actually read by the person who played Jago. Yes. And who I envisioned most much of the time was 
the actor who played the butler on Downton Abbey, who I now know as Jim Carter, because his voice and his inflection were so incredibly similar, I couldn't possibly visualize anyone else. And I realized, well, maybe it is him. Maybe he does voice acting. And then I found out it was Jago instead. But it does actually kind of work with Jim Carter in the Downton Abbey universe, if you remember that that character supposedly had 10 or 20 years earlier done some vaudeville. Oh, yeah. Which actually works with this storyline, although not his age (laughs) at the time. So uh, that is definitely not canon material. Much more dramatized than the previous ones I've read, which had, uh, if any kind of extra effects, like, you know, some slight echo in the background. This had music cues and some sound effects, and it was so awful that about 45 minutes in, I was thinking about chewing off a foot to get out of finishing it. (laughs) (laughs) Because it was so hammed up to the max, and so 70s, particular 70s brand racist, and so, haha, women who work at cabarets love getting slapped on the ass, that I just was in no mood. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did go back to it because I you know, was going to have opportunity to have a little bit more time to finish it. And it was, it was not quite the, the bitter draught the second time around once it got past the initial part. But I kept listening to it because Leela is my new girlfriend. <laughs> and part of that is remember I haven't seen any of these episodes so if it's actually on screen just sort of all preposterous jiggle I don't know that I haven't seen it certainly not written that way mm-hmm. and what it reminded me of was I'm going to leave out the names of the, the people involved with this but in 2008 there was a feminist writer who pre-release copies of a book with 1950s-style Jungle Queen art. Oh. It, it was like some sort of, you know, how to be feminist in the modern world manual, and uh, it was sort of a, a white blonde bombshell fighting some rather animalized, savage African tribe people. And it was a, this is the era from, what we, from which we got the term white feminism. Mm-hmm. It was a sort of a blog apocalypse at the time that sort of defines certain voices that continue to be important to this day. And I thought about how I would have read this book if I'd read it in the 80s or the 90s, and how I would have thought it was fabulous, because Leela has fight scenes that involve her actually winning and not by accident. And uh, I I loved all of the scenes she had with Lightfoot uh, talking about etiquette (laughs) and attire. And I, I would not have understood at all the implications of what I was reading for other people. So as I read through or listened to both the first couple of chapters and the entire thing, I felt that tension that there is this action heroine companion whom I loved from the her first appearance. And at the same time, she is able to define herself by fighting the savage, mystical, superstitious non-whites. Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of feelings wrapped up in that tension for this book. A lot of things I really liked and a lot of things that are just unforgivable and a lot of things that are interesting. Mm-hmm. Issues of sort of, you could broadly categorize as Shylock issues. Understandable. And you're not the only one. Dalton, what was your first impression? Looking at the cover, the doctor with the hat, I was feeling like this was going to go the way of uh, Sherlock Holmes, which... It kind of does. And then also, I wasn't sure which character the 
the person the other person is supposed to be whether that's supposed to be mr sin or grill i thought it was chang in costume <laughs> but now it makes more sense that it's grill maybe oh it would help if i had the cover in front of me they have very large features almost looks like a catfish so i wasn't sure if that was supposed to be the deformed grill, or if that was supposed to be the the mannequin. That's the mannequin. Okay. That's Mr. Sin. So either way, I felt like that character had a very unusual and off-putting appearance. Okay. As he should. Very diplomatic. <laughs> <laughs> the rat is more handsome. Yes, the rat is more handsome, and the rat is just cute and it doesn't look menacing or terrifying at all which but... is exactly the way it appears on screen <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I get that it's supposed to kind of look like it's crawling through the sewers but it just looks like someone's pet rat to me <laughs> but he's always a pet rat to me <laughs> <laughs> yeah also instantly the first few pages the descriptions of the foggy london atmosphere were making me think about jack the ripper as well especially given that there's kind of the parallel with all of the the women that have been disappearing mm -hmm. well interesting you should bring up the cover because it occurred to me that of course you haven't seen the pinnacle cover so i'm going to share that image with you this is what the american version looks like and, of course, the pinnacle covers for the Doctor Who novelizations are always a lot more stylized. They obviously do not know what Daleks actually look like, so they do them their own way. This one strikes me as a much more interesting cover than the one we get in the Target version. Wow, that is uh, significantly darker. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Much, much darker. And the rat, well, the rat still looks cute, but... <laughs> Not quite as cute as he does on the Target version. And yes, the rat actually does look like that on screen. As a matter of fact, I promised our panelists that I would show them what the rat looks like. We're very excited. You, <laughs> you built it up effectively, really salted the oats. I really have. That's what I'm here for. This is a scene from part three where Greel is <laughs> giving some food to the giant rat, so... And you can hear it there. And there he is. Oh. It's just a, a hand puppet. Yes. Yeah, more savage than lions. <laughs> what yeah. a cutie. <laughs> Isn't he? A little less yeah. savage. <laughs> a little less savage. Yeah, that is generally... For the longest time, as I said, that was generally thought of as the one negative part of an otherwise glorious story, whereas now it's more, uh, we still love it, but oh my god, there's so many reasons not to. Yeah. So I think we should probably tackle that immediately and get that out of the way, because Allison, to use your metaphor, already sowed the seeds for that one, as far as talking about the racist stereotypes. 
So let's talk about that because, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. How did they strike you in the book itself? They were very heavy handed. Mm, how so? Just it seemed like every other page that included any of the Chinese characters had some mention of their skin being yellow or... Boy, they sure love that opium, don't they? Yeah, the opium. An ancestor is mm -hmm. an honor suicide. So what else we got? Oh, dragons. That's all I know. Oh, yes. <laughs> the way that they spoke, talking about the pigeon English. Yeah, so it, it seemed like every opportunity there was Terrence Dick's coming up with little one-liners to describe them. Mm -hmm. There was even a joke about Chang at one point saying that one of them was yellow. Yes, when the doctor escapes from the casket. Yeah, from the magic trick. Yes, which for the longest time was seen as one of the most brilliant jokes in the story. And here's why. It still kind of is, and it would be if that part were played by an Asian actor mainly because it is calling into question the racism of Victorian England and the fact that Lee Sun Chang has to talk up the pidgin English because it's expected by the audience. As a matter of fact, Terrence Dix points that out. And that's why I was frustrated yeah. because there is a lot that is interesting that one could do with that. And in those parts, I was actually thinking maybe the story was going to turn around a bit in that direction, that he's basically selling these stereotypes back to his audience because he knows it's what they want to consume, but that is not actually who he is. It's the character that he performs because that's the character that there is a market for. Exactly. But the voice performance, a lot of times he actually talks like that. It's all right, Mr. Jago, said Chang smoothly. I am sure we can settle this misunderstanding peacefully. If you will come to my dressing room, Mr. Buller. Yes, and that may be a problem with Christopher Benjamin's reading of it, because when you watch John Bennett on screen, he does have a quote-unquote Chinese accent, but it's a very cultured Chinese accent. In fact, mm -hmm. there are three levels of performance there. You have Lee San Chang, the performer who is not quite as urbane when he's talking to Jago. And then you have Lee Sen Chang, who is the minion of what he thinks is a sky god, which is its own set of stereotypes that are just, yeah, very difficult to get into. And then you have the performer on stage doing the cod Chinese accent that he thinks his audiences are wanting. And to get those three levels of performance from one actor is pretty, pretty good. Problem is, it's a white actor. And I thought that was the best part of how the character is written, is the idea that no one knows exactly who they're talking to, who the core person with the core motivations are, because he's so skilled at not just literal hypnotism, but manipulation of the situation in his audience. And there, well, once again, we'll go back to the Shylock program that there is, it, there's both something very interesting there as a villain. And also uh, it goes back to the stereotype of the inherently deceptive oriental person who cannot be trusted as well. Mm-hmm. But the yeah. idea that if you play, if you perform Shylock as essentially a victim rather than a villain, then you have stripped a great character. And I don't 
I didn't see the original performance here. The the voice performance, I, I don't know what direction was given for it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if the voice actor began knowing where things were going. What am I talking about? He started the episode. Of course he knew where things were going. But yeah. once again, you're you're giving a white actor the task of performing a racial stereotype that can be very different when a person of that ethnicity is performing it. Exactly. There's a building in town, uh, a CHA, uh, Chicago Housing Authority building, named for the actor whose stage name was Step and Fetch It. Speaking mm. of a complex legacy, where it was, who was obviously quite heavily criticized for embodying this buffoonish, lazy stereotype. And I think it was the 20s through the 40s was uh, the height of his career. And his argument was that he was actually a black actor playing those roles that had been played by white actors before. And it's a very interesting legacy. So I think it would be different if it were an Asian actor performing those stereotypes than a white actor performing an Asian actor performing stereotypes. You get really lost in the layers. Yeah, and it would have been possible to do because the rest of the Chinese characters in the story are played by Asian actors. All of the uh, quote-unquote coolies are played by Asian actors. So it would have been possible to find somebody. I'm not quite... mm. See, uh, I almost said it. I'm not sure it would have been possible to find someone of John Bennett's stature. And then I realized, of course, there were British actors. um, Bert Quilk being one of them. And I know I've mispronounced his last name. but (laughs) And Bert Quilk was somebody who actually worked with Louise Jameson on the series Tanko. Ah... I think we're getting different readings from it, though, because you heard the audiobook. It was much more of a production than the others. The others have been just narrated, maybe a little bit of an echo sound effect in one theme, but the sound effect in one theme. But I was much more guided than I normally am by these. When I was reading Chang, the only parts that I was really getting any of that super stereotypical were the parts where he was performing. Mm. Most of the rest of the time he's speaking, there, you know, Dix isn't even typing in, you know, dialecticals where it's spelled funny, for, for lack of a better description. Every other time you see Chang speaking, it, it, I was reading it as any of the other characters. Mm-hmm. In my head, I wasn't reading it with... Uh, a Chinese accent, per se. And I was hearing it really hammed up. And you were hearing it hammed up. So I was only imagining that whenever he was on stage, when he was putting it on. Right. It's it's one of those situations where it's very noticeable when you're seeing it on screen. It's very noticeable in the audiobook. It's not so noticeable until it's pointed out to you on the printed page. And yet it's still tapping into the same vein of racism, that late 70s racism, but also Victorian England racism, because they're kind of doing a genre thing. Dalton, you said it struck you as very Sherlock Holmes. Mm -hmm. It's very much that, that at one point the doctor even says, elementary, my dear Lightfoot. Yeah. And he's dressed as Sherlock Holmes for most of the story. In fact, I think on, on the page it says he has a scarf. He does not have his scarf on screen. Hmm. It's probably the, in fact, to my mind, it may be one of the only stories where Tom Baker doesn't wear a scarf on screen. But it's Sherlock Holmes. He's going to play Sherlock Holmes, by the way, eventually, in a very negatively received production of The Hound of the Baskervilles in 1980. But here he does it very well. But 
you can't get away from the fact that, yeah, Victorian England would have been that racist towards the Chinese. Which is a totally legitimate story to do. But what we're getting is the racism of the 1970s rather than the 1890s. And the racism of the Fu Manchu books, which were written afterwards as well. So we've still got stereotypes upon stereotypes upon stereotypes, and none of them are an accurate depiction of the Chinese. But with the Celestial Toy Maker, which is one of the half dozen that apparently my brain just absolutely latched onto like a bear trap I won't let go of, we didn't have that carryover into the adaptation, and you had to tell me about the original episodes, uh, shall we say, questionable makeup choices. Yes. And I was actually quite surprised here it carried over into the adaptation, which is, you know, from later. Mm-hmm. With Celestial Toymaker, I think the only indication that we really had was the cover. Right. And the word Celestial. Well, yeah. Which is used to describe Lee Sen Chang in this book as well. Yes. I think it's used by Jago, but yeah. It's it's definitely one of those more pejorative terms that were applied to the Chinese, obviously through the 60s, but also would have uh, made sense in the 70s as well. It is deeply disturbing on that level. On the one hand, if you take it just as a genre invention of the sort of stuff that's set in Victorian London, it's no worse or better than, say, Alan Moore's depiction of Fu Manchu who wasn't named that, obviously, in the graphic novel The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. You still have that feeling of the Chinese are drug addicts, they're addicted to opium, they're criminals, the Tong, they commit suicide uh, when they're captured, they don't know English, and when they do speak English, it's very broken. If you're looking at it that way, it works great, but it's very difficult for us now to look at it that way, and I suspect it probably was even just as difficult to look at it that way in 1977, though, given how well-regarded the story was, I somehow doubt that. Well, and I think if it weren't for recent events of anti-Asian violence that we would that we have seen, I think I would be more tempted to say these are such obvious and outdated stereotypes that they don't really hold any power anymore, but right. a Apparently they do to many people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They did in 1980. They did last year because otherwise BritBox would never put a trigger warning on all six episodes. Which I think is actually the way to do it. To, really? To, well, to label. To label. You're going to see something that is objectionable. We're not dropping it from the catalog. Some things it is appropriate to drop from the catalog. And I haven't seen these episodes here. But it's, it's different than offering it without comment. Yeah, I absolutely agree that it's certainly better to air them with a trigger warning for those that might be upset by the content and to know to avoid it than to outright refuse to air it as TV Ontario did. Because, yeah, I, it, I, I, I'm kind of with you there on that. I, I would much prefer a, a word of warning to not having the work available at all. I think it also depends on the audience as well. So a streaming service is different from, say, you know, the weekday afternoon after school block, Mm -hmm. where, you know, I talked about the first time I saw Doctor Who was Saturday afternoon with the Andy Griffith show and I Love Lucy. And if I were coordinating programming for a block that was aimed at children like that, I, I would 
think twice about airing something like this, as opposed to on a streaming service where you have uh, an audience that's more selecting what they're going to watch. True. <laughs> there are all sorts of reasons possibly not to show this to kids anyway. There's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. also the grisly, all the grisly death, I suppose. Oh, God, yeah. And we have them in the last story. We have them in the previous story. We have outright killing. We have giant rats we have the companion having her leg basically bitten into by the giant rat there's all sorts of nightmare fuel in here to say nothing of when Greel's face is revealed and what happens to the theater cleaner and we see her death which isn't nearly by the way it's not depicted like that on screen thank god it's much worse on the page <laughs> and yet the book's made for kids as well so there we are ah <sighs> You said it was considered one of the best all-time stories. Uh, yeah. From the episode, what do people get excited about? Because I'm interested to know if it's the same things that are exciting about the book or things come across with different sort of different highlights. There are all sorts of reasons to love it. The BBC has always been very good at period drama. So when they do Victorian London, even if they're doing it in the studio, they do it right. Except for the rat. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> there are no rats available for casting in London. Yeah, exactly. The acting is wonderful. The sets are fantastic. You would honestly think that they were in the sewers at one point. It's it's really done quite well. The location filming is amazing. The bit zone film are just tremendous. They do film in an actual theater, so there's that as well. And the wordplay. You probably got that on the page, by the way. Jago and Lightfoot. Jago in, in particular, but his wordplay with Lightfoot especially. Those two characters spark off each other so brilliantly. Jago's alone for a good four episodes, but then when they meet... Oh, it's delightful on the page. Absolutely, and that's one of the things that's loved about it. And I hate to say this, but I think some people like it also because it's one of two times that Leela is not in the warrior garb, and so is much more of a standard companion, even though she's not a standard companion in this at all. No, not at all. <laughs> no. She is amazing in this. And that's a tribute both to Louise Jameson, who was filming it while she was sick, and a tribute to the writing where Robert Holmes was actively working against his desire to have this Eliza Doolittle character and still carried some of it over into the story. But Leela rejects those lessons. Yes, I love that it's not Eliza Doolittle. Mm -hmm. No, not at all. I, I thought it was going to be a story where she actually found came to found these clothes and this etiquette quite charming. But you know, towards the end, you know, she's uh, I, I thought her initial dinner with Lightfoot was actually incredibly delightful for a, a couple of, of different reasons, both the content and then the sort of macro concept that etiquette is supposed to make social situations more comfortable by showing people how <laughs> to behave but so often it is used to make people uncomfortable because they know there's an etiquette they're supposed to observe and they're afraid that they don't know what it is and how to execute it correctly and it was actually such a charming example of how to use etiquette to make your guests more comfortable and the the underlying concepts and then we had the specifics of eating <laughs> she's like oh this is this is a great meal this is, this is a good piece of meat but then towards the end he's trying to tutor her in how to how to do tea in the future and he says you know one lump or two and you say one what if i want two well lady has one well then why do you ask she is completely unreformed and that that was significant i thought mm -hmm. 
she does react slightly differently to her clothing on screen. She says something when she's in the theater garb. Dix has her thinking along the lines of, oh, maybe these clothes aren't so bad after all. But yeah, she goes back to her old outfit immediately as soon as the story is over. Well, I thought at one point she said they were kind of pragmatic because I think like the rat couldn't chew through some of the fabric because it was so thick or something like that. Yeah, she was thankful for it. Yes, yes. And that is something that uh, that's more of an addition of Dick's, I believe, because on screen, you think she's having her leg bitten off. I refer to the one time that Leela actively screams in a story, and it's when she's being bitten into by the rat. And it's a chilling moment, especially since it's an episode cliffhanger. <laughs> so you're like, oh my god, she's getting eaten by a giant rat. And to read on the page, oh no, the, the clothing which she wouldn't normally be wearing kept that from happening. Because if she were in her warrior garb, she would have lost a leg. It must have been a tweed like an army blanket. but It yeah. kind of <laughs> is, yeah. Interesting and, and amusing benevolent sexism where the Bobby comes up on her, literally strangling a man with his own hair. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and the doctors have her able to play it off as, oh, you know, girlish high spirits. And, um, you know, he does take out one line that I, I really wish was still there. Because she asks the doctor when they first come out of the TARDIS, why do you make me wear these ridiculous clothes? And he says something along the lines of, well, you couldn't go around in your normal outfit. You'd frighten the horses. <laughs> I love that line. The, the horse line I remember is when Greel is not pleased with the women he's been brought to be put into his, what do you call it, the juicero, juicero, whatever the, <laughs> the viral sensation was last year. I was never sure which way to pronounce it. <laughs> Look at this one. She has muscles like a horse. All right, yes. I suppose she'll do. <laughs> Tough, stringy, gamey. The strange thing is, on the page, that refers to the cleaning woman that they brought in. But on screen, it's Leela. I thought it was Leela on the the audio as well, that she was the one who specifically was too muscular for his taste. He wanted something tenderer. I seem to recall that it was the other way around, because I remember being surprised by it. Dalton, can you be the... I remember the line, but I thought that it was referring to Leela as well. I think at one point she may have been disguised... In the cleaning woman's clothes or something like that. It wasn't always clear who was being referred to because I actually rewound that a couple of times. I wasn't always sure who was doing well, what. I'm sh- I'm sure I'll have to go back in the next episode and make a uh, apology for the mistake. <laughs> so going, we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> going back to the concept that we have this sort of delightful action. I've I've got to find a new word tonight. I apologize. I've spent all my brain on auditing exams. We have this development and actualization of Leela that is so much fun, but we have it in the Yellow Peril story. Yeah. Lightfoot is so, provides us with such wonderful conversation and patter and is so extremely casually racist as something that's seen as a bit of a foible. Yeah. Like we are supposed to have some contempt for the fact that he grew up in China and took zero interest in it. Yes. And didn't really mm-hmm. see himself as being surrounded by other people. It was like he had grown up among the deer or something or in in, in some situation where like of course I don't understand the bears and the deer and the beavers. Well, it's the a very forest. colonial attitude. Well, but it's something that is it's not something that we're supposed to admire in him, but it's an eccentricity. Yeah. 
Hello? Yes, I, I, I finished yes. my sentence. I, oh, <laughs> I concluded it. I, I'm so used to Zoom I ran out of dropping gas. the connection. So, okay. Seven years, hard labor. My sentence is done. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was talking about the cleaning girl. Sorry, I've been going back and looking. So he was talking mm, about the yes. cleaning girl. Okay. It says, Grill, Grill examined the cleaning girl's arm. This one has muscles like a horse. Oh, yes. my mistake. Yes, because Leela is dressed as the other girl, the one that... Dix actually gives us a little bit of a bio for, which I'm very happy about, yeah. because otherwise, if you see her on screen, you think it's a prostitute coming home after a rough night. Yeah. And in fact, Oof. that's probably what the intention was. <laughs> Especially <laughs> since we do get the word slattern yes. in this. <laughs> and it's like, okay, I can just imagine all these British kids in 1977 going to their dictionaries <laughs> looking up slattern, slattern, uh, synonym slut. Well, what slut? Oh. <laughs> it's like, okay, this is a kid show, all right? Ha <laughs> ha. Yeah. Uh, but he gives us a little bio for her, which is pretty charming, but it also makes sure that, no, she's not a prostitute, at least not on the screen. But yeah, Leela's dressed as the prostitute. Teresa Hart was a waitress in a gambling club in Mayfair on the other side of London. Play usually went on until the small hours of the morning, and she often got home to bed at a time when others were getting up. Well, and a lot of times in these stories we'll have the exceptional woman who is the only one in the story with any sort of characterization and humanity outside of a sexualized role. So, as I said earlier on, we have Jago giving one of the, the chorus girls or magician's assistants a tap on the backside and she sort of giggles and scampers off and... Oh, yeah. Once again, you could absolutely have a scene like that. The problem is when the implication is she really does have a head full of bubbles, as yeah. opposed to Part of her job is performing this not only for the audience, but for the boss. So th the part with the cleaning uh, women later was actually much more humanizing than I expected based on what we'd seen earlier. Hmm. As opposed to Leela being the only female character allowed to have any kind of characterization beyond Bimbo. Yeah, I agree. What's troubling, though, is that even in the original script, the doctor himself is participating both in the sexism to some degree and in the racism. His line, for instance, on the page when Jago says, so the Celestial Chang really was involved in these Machiavellian machinations, and he says, up to his epicanthic eyelids. And by the way, for those of you who may be wondering, on screen, Tom Baker delivers that line as up to his epicanthic eyebrows, which is only slightly better. Anyway, back to the program. It's like, oh, there's no way to read that as not being racist. And this is the doctor. So this is 1977, this book? It is. And the episode is what year? Uh, also 77. Okay, so I talked about Celestial Toymaker and how there were improvements to the existing story and the adaptation, but here we don't have that kind of distance. Not really. In fact, not at all. I was kind of surprised when I looked that up and saw, oh, it's one of those books that actually was novelized within months of the airing. Which makes sense because you refer to some of the later ones as being the last ones adapted before they run out of material. Yes. There's also the fact that, and you'll hear this in some of the reviews from Goodreads, that this is before Dix is chained to his typewriter. So he's still taking care with it. Obviously he's taking care with it because it's a Robert Holmes script, but this is before he's trying to hit a deadline, and so he is taking some degree of care with it, and you can tell because it's 77. 
Yeah, it felt it felt like a more substantial book. It very much is. And I think it's because one well, one, it's a six parter. So some of the padding that's in the six parter, because it's a six parter, is still in the book. And for another, the standard practice of upping the page count for a six parter to one hundred forty pages, that helps. Yeah. That helps a bit. What else do we want to say speaking of about the hypnotism i'm glad that leela didn't actually get hypnotized hmm? okay, i was I, I was just full-on expecting i mean every other time there's a character that hypnotizes people the companion gets hypnotized mm-hmm. and somehow tries to screw over the doctor hurt him lead him somewhere he's not supposed to go it's like chris claremont levels of hypnotism up in here you're exactly right <laughs> <laughs> So I was I was really glad to see that Leela inserts herself in the place of someone that was hypnotized, but she's never actually hypnotized. Yeah, it is a nice change, isn't it's it? It's kind of amazing for a companion, for a female companion. Well, and also for the noble savage companion. Like I said, I was thinking mm-hmm. about Jamie. Where I feel like Jamie was always being led around by a pocket watch. Maybe I'm exa- it's exaggerated in my memory, but... Well, I do notice that both Leela and Jamie do much the same thing and that whenever they're put in peril, it's not so much a damsel in distress sort of thing. It's that they put themselves in peril by their own actions, which are meant to help. Yeah. And sure, companions do that all the time. We saw Joe do that. We saw Sarah do that. But you're not going to have Leela chained up as a sacrifice to something. In the same way that Sarah was, for instance, twice. Which is amazing considering... I've googled the costume now, which I only before had seen on the cover of the first story in which she appears. It's amazing considering that is a costume that you would think was custom designed for being chained up to be sacrificed. That that doesn't (laughs) happen. Right. Well, yeah, because it would have had to happen in her first story or in a story that takes place in a jungle or something like that. And luckily, no. That doesn't end up happening. Are we alarmed that she is still packing Janus thorns? We should be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the doctor is like, well, you know, I don't really like to kill, but I don't like to be killed. So what can you do? I guess kill. Well, he is definitely pissed off about it, both on screen and on the page as well. He should be. But if I, if memory serves, this is the last time we will ever see them. She will kill, <laughs> but she won't kill Janus thorns. So there is that couple of other things in this one one of them is that if you divorce it which is very difficult to do from the victoriana from the racism from the sexism you get the first glimmerings of future history working its way through doctor who yes i'd actually argue in there that one of the reasons that i struggle is i think it is not a sexist story but it is a racist story and i am tempted to gloss over the part that doesn't affect me okay so i kind of derailed that there but it it would be easier for me to reject the whole thing if it were racist and sexist i think it's just racist oh i see but got it but against a group that i'm not a member of so it's easier for me to not feel personally targeted by it and affected by it that's why i feel so it's such a mixed way about this story it's hard on people who are not me I think the only reason why I think of it as sexist at all is probably because I'm bringing part of the televised story into it, that Leela, to some degree, feels very infantilized at some 
points. For example, the scene where she shows up in the theater garb and Lightfoot and the doctor are beaming over her as an actual proper lady. That's the way it goes on screen. It doesn't go like that on the page. Yeah, I'd say I expected a scene like that and was surprised there wasn't one. That's how it's televised. That's how it happens because in the television. It felt like a story version. that talks about and depicts sexism, but it's not a sexist story. And there's a lot of material here where it could have been a story that depicts racial stereotypes, but doesn't perpetrate them. And it decided to, to go with both. That's why it's so yeah. disappointing. I, I think probably the line, if you're if you're good, I'll buy you an orange, is one that sticks out to me. Because it's like, oh, okay, so Leela's 12 all of a sudden. And she does become Eliza Doolittle in that moment. And I read it as the doctor being an ass because she never actually sounded stupid to me. She often sounds like, it often seems like the doctor is being dismissive of Leela. But then we've had this, every story she's been in, she says something that actually surprises him with being very insightful, even though her analysis is technologically primitive and socially primitive for the situation that she's always actually quite on top of it. Yes. But once again, page adaptation rather than, than on screen, maybe on screen, she seems pretty silly. Well, she doesn't seem silly at all. In fact, you can even see her being that perspicacious when the doctor's not around. When the doctor leaves Lightfoot's carriage and Lightfoot says, oh, he doesn't even know the address. And Leela says, he heard you tell the driver yes, this. Yes, that's exactly the kind of moment that I'm mm-hmm. thinking of. Yeah, and that is tremendous. It, it does play weirdly with those scenes where the doctor seems more pleased with her when she's more feminine i suspect that's tom baker's performance coming into it to be honest i hate to say that but we know that he didn't like the character so maybe he felt oh well this is where the character turns around and she doesn't have to be half naked all the time even though she goes back to being half naked all the time and my perspective is affected by my biases that i thought leela was written better than the doctor here oh i would think so on the page and and as more sympathetic then yeah okay i could see that because she almost seems like his blind spot that lightfoot sees how interesting and intelligent she is right away whereas the doctor earlier right is infantilizing but i didn't feel invited to share the doctor's perspective Mm. yeah and i could see that too especially when you get lines like there was no point in worrying about the body of a dead enemy live ones were far more important (laughs) Leela has moments like that that she doesn't get on screen and so she does come across even better on the page I would say despite Louise Jameson's incredible performance. Now as far as the future history Dalton I think you know exactly what I'm talking about there. Mm -hmm. Yes unfortunately this means we have to talk about Captain Jack Harkness and I say unfortunately because as of the time of recording John Barrowman is going through this whole dust up about actions that he took on the set of Doctor Who and later on the set of Arrow. So the actor is definitely in the cancellation zone. The character may be in the cancellation zone, but this is the starts of the origins of the future history from whence that character comes. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And this, I, I was actually curious to know if the roughly 5,000 AD history linked into things we were going to see in the future and if this was the first time we'd seen this particular future predicted it takes until the first season of the new series for that to happen Mm. and we're told that captain jack harkness is a former time agent 
and Griel seems to think that the doctor is a time agent, which raises a big old question. Griel came to this era because of a time travel experiment. He thinks he's being pursued by time agents. Is it because there was time travel technology already, so time agents existed? Or is it that he felt that his work was so groundbreaking that time travel then did exist, and so the existence of time agents was just a given after that point? It's a little bit of a weird plot snag, and I'm not sure it ever gets completely unwound. But by the time we get to the uh, first season of the new series, Captain Jack Harkness is very definitely spoken of as a former time agent from the 51st century. So he's from Griel's time period. So we do go back to it. And I, I didn't say this in the intro to this story, but there are numerous, and I mean numerous, short stories, audios, and a couple of books that are either set during that time or set just after that time or sequels to this that all have to do with Griel and the Zygma Beam experiments and the 51st century, which are pretty interesting. What I was thinking at thought, this is, you know, the context that launches a thousand fanfics. Or the backstory, I should say. I was just going to ask, yeah, if those were official or if those were fan-written pieces. Well, if we get into questions of canonicity, <laughs> then, which is always a thorny thing to do with Doctor Who, then we can say that only the references to Captain Jack having been a time agent with the Vortex Manipulator, which sounds like a very dirty piece of time travel technology akin to the Zygma Beam. So that sounds about right. That tracks. But that would be the only canonical references. The books obviously aren't considered canonical nor the audios, nor the short stories, and yet there's so many of them that, yeah, it's launched quite a bit. Okay. It sounds like the kind of thing that would be a lot of fun to write and very little fun to read, if that makes sense. Like, it's a backstory that excites the imagination, but the kind that is often with a sort of long-running story like this, because I, I should say franchise, but it sounds so crass. It's the sort of thing that's most exciting when there's very little official information about it, and you can think about what the story could be. And when it starts yeah. being officially filled out, it becomes what people tell me Star Trek Enterprise is because I never was interested in watching it once people described it to me that way. Right. Well... I think there are so many different interpretations of it that it still ends up being that because it does the the mentions of the Peking homunculus who in the book he started World War Six in the mm -hmm. televised version he almost started World War Six but it's in it's given here by Dix that Griel specifically gave that to the Emperor's children and in an attempt to assassinate them. And it led to World War Six, which finished up with the Filipino army in the final advance on Reykjavik. There's just something about that sentence. There's so much <laughs> yes. to unpack in that sentence. Yes, You're like, yeah. what? <laughs> yes, and then the same war somehow was the Butcher of Brisbane. I'm like, wait, who's fighting whom, where? Yeah, exactly. And you're like, whoa. So geopolitics of the future are extremely different, which is what you'd expect. 
but yeah, it it does fire up the imagination, and it's dropped smack bang in the middle of a Sherlock Holmes Fu Manchu pastiche. And I didn't see it coming because I thought that Greel would turn out to just be uh, some form of space alien, to, to use the uncouth term. I, I didn't see him being a figure from future Earth. Right. Or just Phantom of the Opera. Because yeah. <laughs> that's very much another influence on this. The original title was Foe from the Future. So that would have given it away. And I think they quite rightly changed the title knowing that it would give it away. But yeah. I, and I think that's another one of the things that people like about this story. That it seems like it's going to be a straightforward historical. And then very quickly it becomes apparent that it is not. And it works brilliantly with that sort of intermixing of the genres the problem is one of those genres happens to be completely and horribly racist but there you go (laughs) it's a bit like what we had with first story with leela and the sabatine the what of death the the face of evil face of you know face of evil mask of death whatever you have on hand for your halloween costume We, we thought we might be thousands of years in the past, and it turned out that we were in the future. Mm-hmm. So that's been a theme with this character around, the extreme past and extreme future. Well, I guess you know, 1890s is not extreme past, but we don't expect that in the historical. We expect the future or the past. We don't expect them both. Yeah, we're not going to have a pure historical again until 1982, I believe. So yeah, it's going to be a while before we see a a truly straightforward historical that has no science fiction elements in it whatsoever. Well, and it's not even as pure historical as we've seen in the past in that I don't remember... Well, there's no character who's a, a known historical figure. I don't, off the top of my head, remember references to... Like, even throwaway references to major historical figures of the time. There are a few. Mm-hmm. The doctor says that he was hoping to see Little Titch. And I actually had to look that hey, up. I'm so uncultured, I do not know who that is. No, I had to Google it as well. Yeah. yeah. Little Titch was a little person who was a famous music hall comedian and dancer at that time. And actually, his career stretched, I think, into the 20s. But in a typical historical, he might show up and have a scene. We didn't see anyone like that here like we ordinarily might. Well, probably we're thinking about the way we think of Doctor Who historicals now with the new series as opposed to then. Because a historical back then simply referred to any story that was set in Earth's history. Mm. It didn't necessarily have to have a major figure from history in it. As a matter of fact, The Smugglers doesn't. But that's a straightforward historical. And I'm trying to think of another Mm. example of one that is set in the past that the Highlander. Well, the Highlanders, yeah. Speaking of Grill, at some points when they kept referring to the Time Cabinet, I thought this was going to somehow tie into the Time Lords. Like this was going to be some other piece of Mm. equipment of theirs that somehow ended up in someone's hands or that Grill was going to be some other diabolical Time Lord character that was stranded as we've seen in the past that was mm-hmm. trying to figure out uh, you know his way off of earth renegade time lord who makes furniture as a hobby <laughs> <laughs> well this might clarify that for you dalton because i forgot to mention an early draft of the story idea had the master as the secret villain 
there you go. Yeah, <laughs> yes. But Hinchcliffe quite rightly thought, well, we've already had the Master as the secret villain in just a couple stories ago. So to have him twice as the secret villain in one season, we might as well be making the Pertwee era again. <laughs> so no longer much of a secret. Well, honestly, I, I had suspicions that it was the Master again as well because of his deformed face. Just because he's going by a different name doesn't mean it's not going to be him. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and there's one point where someone does refer to him as Master. It's not in caps the way it <laughs> it was in the, the other story we read, but I had moments where I was kind of guessing that maybe this had something to do with him, or the Time Lords at least. And then even with Mr. Sin, there were moments where I was like, is this actually a person? Well, no. Leela hits him with the hatchet in the neck and nothing happens. So then it's like, okay, well, is this some kind of robot mm -hmm. which it ends up very being... terrifying form of robot so, i thought that it would turn yeah. out he would turn out to actually be the one in control of the situation mm. once again some sort of mm -hmm. other life form portraying a dummy who was literally named mr china oh god yeah that would have been awful but magnus so close it's so adjacent in the consonants that yeah certainly seems that way mm -hmm. but then you do have the spoiler of mr sin and it's like when did the master ever have a ventriloquist dummy who's actually not a ventriloquist dummy but actually is a uh, <laughs> homunculus with the cerebral cortex of a pig which is part of the problem <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> which is pretty brilliant actually I do love him going berserk at the end and just deciding to kill any and every yes, living creature With around. that gigantic fucking dragon laser beam. Oh, there is nothing more Fu yeah. Manchu than having a giant dragon figure whose eyes are literally a beam of death. Mm. Oh, I know. I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't necessarily like it either, but the part of me that likes Victoriana loves it. <laughs> steampunk dragon oh yeah gosh. i know i know now dalton you said that you also want to talk about the the wordplay in the story because there's quite a bit of it there's amazing dialogue in the story which is another strength of it and it's part of the reason why robert holmes was considered mm -hmm. such a great writer was because of the writing in this story jago's strange alliterations for instance which you'd expect from a theater manager of that time but also that appears to be just the way he is mm -hmm. <laughs> and yes. then we get the word <laughs> upazudics yeah, so can you can you extrapolate on that a little bit? <laughs> I I looked it up and the only things I could find were things that came back to this story. Well, strangely enough, under a different spelling, it is a word that is apparently still used in parts of the South to this day. Having the upazudics refers to having some undiagnosed complaint. So are you suffering mm. from the upazudics? I'd never heard it before. I remember it from the story, but I think I just passed it off as, oh, that's local color or, you know, the, the, uh, something of the time that I'm not supposed to understand. Is it like the itis yeah. or the can't help it? Yeah, it's kind of like that. <laughs> it's kind of like that. The lurgy I have only learned about in the last couple of years. Now that I don't know about. I had to be informed by a Brit of what it meant. Oh, okay. <laughs> Radio Ahead has a song called Lurgy, but I don't remember what it means. I think, um, well, actually, now I'm trying to remember. I think it's like a, an illness that you fake. I'm down with the lurgy or something, like, if I'm remembering the right definition. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
But we get lines like, doubtless I shall descry your lugubrious lineaments at the crepuscular hour. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And that that's just brilliant. That's all Bob Holmes. That's Bob Holmes just giving in to his desire to go into a Victorian thesaurus and pull out everything that he can and use it to good effect. There's also the doctor's exchange with Leela about Eureka, <laughs> which is my favorite uh, joke ever from a Doctor Who story. I don't even remember the content, the just, a, just a very, yes, a very warm and happy, satisfied feeling, whatever the joke was. Yes. <laughs> yes. Perhaps he has another Eureka? No, Eureka is Greek for this bath is too hot. I <laughs> also, uh, uh, I love Leela referring to the policemen as the blue guards. Yes. Um, just kind of that simplified way of describing the police. Yes. It's totally in character. Mm-hmm. And wondering why it is that Lightfoot is making fire in his mouth. Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> which ordinarily is, is the kind of moment that you use to make fun of the more primitive character. But she actually, you know, but I think there is some moment of pause of, uh, I don't know, why am I? <laughs> Precisely. There's also the bit where the doctor's talking to Jago and Jago thinks he's there to become an act. And the doctor just kind of goes along with it and starts telling him, does he want dramatic recitations, tap dancing? I can play the trumpet voluntary in a tank of live goldfish. (laughs) (laughs) It's just so ridiculous. I I did like that the doctor was thrilled to be mistaken for a vaudeville performer and and had all kinds of show ideas. On the page, it's obvious that he's going to play it in the tank. On screen, I remember him saying in a bowl of live goldfish. It's like, wait, what? Are you going to put the trumpet into the bowl and play it? Hard on the fish. fish? Yes, just a little bit. Well, then we have, uh, was it Pertwee Doctor and Joe were mistaken for uh, circus folk in that yes. uh, episode, that story that took place entirely in a hangar? Yes, uh, Carnival of Monsters. And uh, they're mistaken by. By actual circus folk, I think. By actual circus <laughs> folk to the point that they start speaking Polari with them. And Polari is, of course, not only the language the Carnies use, but also the language used by the gay community in the 60s and 70s in London. So, yeah, not only do they think that he's a Carney, they think he might be gay, which we can understand if you see the Pertwee Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. I don't know if anyone else looked up the Venerable Bead. I looked it up just to remind myself of why it is that the doctor name dropping him is so shocking to Lightfoot. I thought it was really, I'm going to show off. I knew exactly who the Venerable Bead was and I thought it was very funny and I don't even remember what was said about him. Just, it was the combination of a good joke and then the arrogance of getting it. That he caught a giant fish out of the River Fleet and shared it with the Venerable Bead who adored fish. So... Allison, I'm going to let you show off for once. (laughs) Who was the Venerable Bede and why was that so funny? (laughs) Well, there's now a sort of, I don't want to say a theme park to the Venerable Bede, but uh, there's a sort of World Heritage (laughs) site that sort of, you know, a colonial Williamsburg dial reconstruction uh, called something like Bede's World. Uh, I am Googling now when the Venerable Bede lived. Seventh century. I did not remember that off the top of my head, but his are some of the, the earlier surviving scholarly writings we have from from Britain. And um, he's 
theologically significant relative to his time and, and place. And he's, uh, he's one of the happy historic religious figures as opposed to the one who sets people on fire. Is, is he, <laughs> you know, he, he sort of like St. Francis, he's known as a very gentle soul. But the, yeah. the other thing that I, I like to kept going back to in the story is I remember reading an article in the last five years about the lost underground rivers of London and how I didn't realize it was so far in the past. It was centuries in the past, all of these different rivers, but we would think of them in scale as more like creeks had been rerouted underground through the sewer system and now some of them are being rerouted above ground again. We actually have some of these in Chicago that were small enough that they were actually just able to be diverted into the underground sewer system as well, three creeks in the loop and river north. So I really liked that way of connecting the doctor's previous historic journeys to London with this current one and then the idea that he will have future ones but certain things like where the rivers are even if they're forced underground the basic course is still constant mm -hmm. however this is another reason why that joke is kind of odd because I believe it was the discontinuity guide that pointed out that the river fleet would have been completely septic in Bede's time, oh, God. <laughs> so you wouldn't want to fish gotcha. in that river, and you certainly wouldn't want to eat anything that came out of it. <laughs> so, <laughs> kind of funny. So that person knew a lot more than I did, so that person wins. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else you want to say about this? There is uh, one line that I thought was kind of clever without the character even realizing how clever it was. Whenever the Doctor and Leela are going into the royal uh, box seat, to watch Chang's performance. Casey and Jago are talking and Casey says, he doesn't look much like a detective to me. And then Jago says, well, he's not going to wear a bowler hat and big boots, is he? High up secret investigator he is, a man of a thousand faces. <laughs> and I just think that's such a, a, a lovely little wink at us who know that the doctor is someone whose face literally can change. And that he's probably literally had a thousand faces, come to think of it. Yeah. As we know now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Couldn't have known that then, but... <laughs> and then uh, just a little bit further down this the page, there's the mention of Leela having one of her little Sixth Sense episodes, I guess, where she, even though she didn't really know what was happening in the theater, it says she was already picking up vibrations of pleasure and excitement in the air. It reminded her of the tribal festivals of her own people. I adore that. In fact, I adore mm -hmm. that scene more on screen because you get to see Leela enjoying the performance the soprano in question on screen is singing a bicycle built for two in, as a sing-along and leela says there's no obligation <laughs> you don't have to sing along <laughs> and it's just lovely absolutely lovely but it is a difficult story in so many ways there's so many good things about it and there's so many bad things about it that are for once, not necessarily due to plot problems so much as yeah. approach problems, if that makes sense. So, shall we go to Goodreads? Let's go there. Yes. 
I think so, yeah. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with their own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a comment, or review in our Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of 5 stars is 3.82, which is at least two-tenths of a point higher than the last book. And it's fairly high, too. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length. Sorry, everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Damon gives his usual short review. This is the time he gives it four stars and says, A cracking read not as problematic as the TV version, but does miss out the best line of it's a floater, all right. (laughs) Interesting (laughs) you should point that one out. Classic Robert Holmes pairing with Jago and Lightfoot. Our Patreon Dave Davis says, where do I start? Well, the two major problems with the television version are sorted out in the book, or almost. The giant rat, an embarrassment on screen, is more convincing on the page. It was only added to tie in with the Sherlock Holmes vibe of the rest of the show, referring to a Conan Doyle throwaway line about the giant rat of Sumatra, a story for which the world is not yet prepared. But it became a major headache for the production team. The major headache, big headache, I see what you did there. The other big problem is the racism, which is only partially addressed by the novelization. Out of curiosity, I dipped into the audiobook to hear how the reader, Christopher Benjamin, deals with Lee Sen Chang. Thankfully, he doesn't use a cod Chinese accent. Oddly, he uses what sounds to me like a cod Native American accent instead. And sometimes it was a bit Spanish. It was, I wasn't sure what he was trying to do. That's interesting. I'll have to listen to it myself and find out. Obviously, with no actors involved, the book removes this piece of casual racism, but with that gone, something even worse is exposed. There's not one positive Chinese character in the whole story. And he goes on to talk about the Ontario boycott, which I talked about, and then he says this. Similar boycotts seem to have occurred wherever there was a significant Asian community, but the yellowface aspect of the controversy appears only to have been raised in recent years. By the way, it's only been raised in Canada and the, uh, the United States in the 80s and 90s, and it's only starting to be raised in the UK. All of this makes it sound like I hate the story, but that's far from the truth. I do, however, feel guilty for liking it as much as I do. Oh, and Leela's one and only scream does happen on screen. Terrence Dix can't be blamed for this one. <laughs> Jaya Prakash Satyamurthy gives it three stars and says definitely one of the more effective novelizations, the layers of incongruity with this reciprocal culture shock experienced by Leela and the Victorian she meets, and of course the effervescent anarchic presence of the Fourth Doctor are delightful. See, Allison, someone else uses it too. <laughs> And Dix just seems to be having a blast with this pulpy romp through the streets and sewers of London. It's all very Fu Manchu with some really grisly bits. And finally, Daniel Kukwa gives it four stars and says, One of Terence Dix's last substantial novelizations before he was overcome by his once-a-month mass-produced thin transcripts of the late 1970s, which we're about to get into, by the way. Mind you, he had a Robert Holmes scripted masterpiece to work with here, and he works hard to do the story justice. It certainly shows on every page. 
So, Allison, out of five stars, what would you give this? I have been dreading this moment for two days, and I've got to say, there are a lot of things I've been dreading the last two days, so that's a high honor for this moment. Imagine that you were served a layer cake for which the top layer was the finest flourless chocolate cake you had had in the last 10 years, and the bottom layer was roadkill possum. (laughs) And you were asked to rate this cake as a whole. You could not rate the two layers separately. And every time I try to come up with a number, I get an interlock mechanism error from my brain. Or it's like Family Feud with like the red X. (laughs) 0.25 for all the yellow face, yellow peril. You could have done better and didn't. But all of the wordplay and all the characterization. 3.5. But all of this and I, I cannot actually come up with anything. If I were going to rate it on the content that clearly living people find harmful to them in their community. It's not just a theoretical thing. Asian North Americans object to this story and find it harmful. I would give it a an extremely low number and then there are all these valuable things in it. What's so frustrating is that they don't have to both be there. It's not inherent to the story, to a story that includes Asian characters in Victoria, London, that the story itself has to have racist elements. And that's what's so frustrating. It's such a a waste. So I I can't go with a number. I can't rate the flourless chocolate cake and the possum at like a 2.5 because that doesn't make sense for either one. So at risk of permanent wrath of Tony, I am actually abstaining because everything high and low seemed wrong. No, I was actually going to suggest an abstention. It's not because of mediocre feelings, it's because of strongly positive feelings about some parts of my favorite material that I've read in these books and some of the worst material that I've read in these books. It is not a mediocre story. Agreed. Dalton, out of five stars? I'm going to go around 3.5. Terrence Dick's writing is really good in here. There's a lot of enjoyable character moments, which I actually forgot to mention two of, so I will mention now. Yes. Or there's the mention of Leela calling Griel bent face. Yes. Which I really enjoyed. And then there's the doctor's line where he's waking up from his spell and he's quoting and someone says, he's reciting Kipling. And the doctor says, nonsense, it's Harry Champion. Kipling used to get very annoyed about that. (laughs) And it's not even Harry Champion as it turns out. (laughs) (laughs) Even better. Yeah, there's some really great character moments but a lot of the culturally insensitive parts really do bring it down. And like Allison said, it's it's not something that you can really ignore since it is such a large part of the book. But I do feel like a lot of it has been tempered compared to what was probably seen in the TV series. So I would say 3.5. And I would have to agree that... It is impossible to ignore the problematic parts of this story. When you do, you get an amazing story. When you don't, you still get an amazing story, but it's got this overhang of roadkill, as Allison put it, which is impossible to ignore. That being said, I have trouble reacting to the story with anything but the joy that I had when I was a nine-year-old and saw it for the first time. Oh, I totally understand that. I, th- I think any rating, no matter how, how high or low, I would 
nod sagely at and say, yes, I see why you would rate it that high or that low. I just can't do it myself. But there is a lot of joy and energy in it. Yeah, that being said, though, when we're looking at the novelization, we're looking at whether or not it is a faithful adaptation of the story, whether it improves upon the story, whether it faithfully brings the story to the page. This does faithfully bring the story to the page, warts and all. As a matter of fact, there are a few points at which Dix could have turned away from the racism and doesn't. And he can't really fault him necessarily for that, given his generation, given the era, given the fact that even in 1977, these attitudes would have been prevalent. If you look at it as a historical document of a historical document, if you look at it as 1977, looking back at a fantastical version of London that only existed in the pages of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle or Sax Romer, or any of the other Victorian slash Edwardian writers writing about this period, then it really works brilliantly, but it's very, very difficult to set that aside. All of that being said, the prose is wonderful. The wordplay is wonderful. The writing is wonderful. The racism, not wonderful. But I can't really hold that against the book itself. So I'm going to go the same as Dalton and give it a 3.5 with an asterisk. <laughs> well aware that that asterisk is always going to hang over the story and there's no getting rid of it. But it's still, it's still a story that I love. So, And this is coming from somebody that is affected directly by the racism in the story. Affected indirectly by it for sure. But yeah, 3.5. So, thank you all. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we begin a season full of dicks. <laughs> As in, every book from the next season is adapted by Terrence Dix. It is the only season of Doctor Who you can say that about. Beginning with the novelization of his own script, The Horror of Fang Rock. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word with no spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at EmperorDalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. going to say i remembered one other thing that i forgot to even mention terrence dix talks about the doctor having two hearts actually is correct about it <laughs> something about arranging to get shot in the left one or something like that the left hand yes. heart yes yeah. he has his hand over his, <laughs> the left-handed heart <laughs> okay